Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. To be able to preach God's Word this morning, to be able to engage the Scriptures. Before I do that, Mark messaged me this morning. He said, Tyler, please tell the church I say a huge, huge hello. He is camping with the Funder Vesthazens, which means that there are six boys, or eight actually, including Mark and Rian, (laughs) most of the time. But Mark and Rian, so there are six boys, five of which are under the age of 12, camping somewhere. So firstly, pray for the people on the lot next to them. And secondly, pray for them, because, wow, that's a, that's a real thing. But thankfully, nothing will be broken on the stage this week, which is really exciting. But um, it really is an amazing privilege to be up here this morning. I want to thank the elders. I want to thank Mark and Gabs and Wayne, <laughs> who's here this morning, and um, a lot of guys away. But a, a real privilege to be able to preach this morning. Um, this, some of you won't know this, many of you are new to the Life Changes story and, and this congregation, but I joined Life Changes eight and a bit years ago. I was 15 years old. I was far worse looking than what I am now. Um, yes, I know, it's hard to believe. Um, and I remember walking into this room. Um, the, at that time, the um, stage was in that corner over there. The chairs were um, curved like this. Us was right in that corner over there. So basically where the music storeroom is, that's where I stood. Um, and I, I met God and, and Jesus engaged with me. Um, and eight years later, I have the privilege of standing up here and preaching God's word. And more than anything, to, to not to boast or anything, but just to say that God can do incredible things. I was a very insecure teenager, um, wasn't sure where my life was going, had some things going on, but God can do incredible things. So if you have walked into church for the first time this morning, I, I, am to- I did not grow up in a Christian home. The first time I walked into church, I was petrified. I was very scared. I felt like it was going to be that moment in high school when you're late for assembly and they make you walk down the aisle and sit right in the front. That's what I thought they would do at church. So can I ask that? No, I'm joking. We won't do that. But it really, um, it was, uh, that is what I thought. But actually, we're a community of people who, number one, love Jesus, and number two, love people. Yeah. So if you're here for the first time or you've been visiting, we want to say a huge, huge welcome. I want to tell you guys a little bit about myself. We aren't in a preaching series at the moment, um, but I want to start off by sharing a little bit of my story and then going to get stuck into a story in the Bible, which is truly, truly incredible. I was born in a beautiful town called Springs in Gauteng. <laughs> Who knows where Springs is? I apologize. Okay. And so I was born in this wonderful town called Springs. There are many felts. And if you don't know what a felt is also, that's okay. Um, and, and many felt fires. And that was really the entertainment that we enjoyed in Springs. All the families, there's a fire, come quickly. Everyone would line up on the road. We'd watch. Then we'd go back into our houses and sleep. That was the way it worked. Electric fencing is famous in Springs. Um, but it's a lovely little town. Um, which um, my amazing dad still lives in, so that's okay. But um, I have one mother and one father. I know it's hard to believe, um, but they, my mom lives here in Cape Town with me, but I was born in Springs. We moved to Benoni, um, which is also, it's, it's fantastic. Quinton's from Benoni, in case you were wondering. Um, we moved to Benoni, lived there until I was 12 years old. My um, uncle, my mom has two brothers. One of them lives in Joburg. One of them lives here. When I was 12 years old, um, Well, let me rather backtrack a little bit. My parents were married for seven years, 
um, from when I was, they got married just as I was about to be born. They were married for seven years after that. They got divorced when I was eight years old. Um, my parents separated. It had quite an incredible effect on our, obviously, family dynamic like any divorce does. Um, also had quite an effect financially on me and my mom. So the next couple of years were quite challenging. And when I was about 12, uh, halfway through grade seven, my uncle, who is an incredible man, lives here in Cape Town. He said, why don't you guys move down to Cape Town? I was petrified. I knew nobody here. I was not that popular in my school in Joburg, but I had a couple of friends and I liked having those friends. Moved down to Cape Town, did not know anyone, started halfway through the year in a new school. A petrifying thing. It seemed like the worst thing that could possibly happen. I remember opening the door. The only exciting thing was the sea. Everything else was petrifying. And I arrived here and didn't really know what to do or how to go about um, things. But you realize that God is very clever. Um, and he will move you from one province to another province. He will place you in a house in Malkbos, which will mean that you will go to a high school in Malkbos, which is what happened. And then you will go to a youth ministry in Malkbos where you will get saved. And then eight years later, God will use you in a space like this. So God is very clever, guys. I really want to start with that. I want to um, just very quickly get into a bit of my story of how I met God when I was 15 years old. My mom and I had moved into a little flat in Tableview here. The reason I tell these stories is because actually the gospel is real. It's real life. It lands in our lives. It, I think sometimes church can come across as quite um, ethereal and above us and all of these profound thoughts. But actually the gospel lands in people's lives. That is, and, and so what happened was I was 15 years old going to a school called Malkbostrand Private School. My mom is an amazing lady. She worked seven days a week to look after me. Um, we, she was at work a lot of the time, but we were still under huge financial pressure um, and some big challenges constantly just popping up. And I just started to get incredibly overwhelmed as this 15-year-old who had to grow up really quickly, had to figure some things out, had to... Um, yeah, it was just big for me. I didn't really know where to go, how to, what to step into, and I just got incredibly overwhelmed. And how many times in your life have you said that statement, something's got to change? Something's got to change. Something in this situation's got to change. I think most people, when they walk out to their lawn at the moment, they go, something's got to change. Please, God. As your neighbor next door has this lush green grass because of boreholes. Anyway, that's okay. I live with a lady who's very passionate about her gardening, so I hear this all the time. But actually you walk and you go, something has got to change. And I got to the point at 15 years old, I went, something's got to change in my situation. And you know, change is this very intriguing thing. I remember when I was, um, when I was in grade 11, we went on a history camp up a bunch of mountains to look at a bunch of rock paintings. And it was a hectic hike. And I remember going, going, going. And you know, when you're 17 years old, there's lots of girls on this hike and camp, and you, you need to look cool. So I put on my shorts, and I put on my hiking shoes, and I put my flat cap on before they were snazzy. And I remember hiking, hiking, and I'm just, you know, when you're running ahead, and you go, this is going to end badly. And I was running ahead, running ahead, and we got to this part where there was a very small crevice, and you had to crawl through it. So um, I am slightly claustrophobic, so it wasn't my favorite thing in the world. And I remember, I remember you had to do this, and, and I'm going to just show you. So yeah, and you go through that hole, and as I got to about here, I just stopped. And I remember going, and there's many people waiting behind me, and many people who have gone ahead of me, and there's only one hole to get to the other side. And I remember going, something's got to change. 
And I remember them pulling me out of that hole, and I had to go the long way around. And I remember that day I signed up for Virgin Active. But anyway, that's a whole other story for another day. But I remember sitting there going, something's got to change. Um, and change is this intriguing thing, and it's a, I think it's a thing that eludes so many of us. For some of us, it is a petrifying thing. You know, there, I believe there are two types of change. There are external change and internal change. And for example, external change was the day my mom said to me, Tyler, we're moving to Cape Town. There's not much I could do about it. I said to her, no, this is not your decision. Okay. You know, when you're like 12, you're like, your parents are like, we're doing this. No, I don't think that's a wise decision. No, we don't. Okay, fair enough. You're going to school. No, I don't think that's a what. No, you're going to school. Okay, okay. And actually, there's nothing you can do about external change. And for many people, it is this thing that, that is, it petrifies us. I have a, a friend who, if you get into his car and you adjust his seat, he will spend an hour and a half readjusting his seat because it has to be perfect. Am I? That's, that's a real thing. Am I right? Some guys know that's very weird. But he is compulsive about that kind of thing. He hates change. But actually, there's not much we can do around external change. It's this thing that, that scares us, that often makes us back-footed, all of these sorts of things. But actually, then there's this thing called internal change. And internal change means I change. The, the way I process all of these things about myself change. And, and you know what? That's, I think, the, the one that scares us the most. Because actually, it is the most elusive thing imaginable. We live in an age where where um, self-help is massive. It is this thing that is preached. Oprah is the queen of self-help. She will, if you're looking for self-help books, just watch Oprah. She'll recommend 25 every show. It's this, we live in this age where it's be the best you you can be. Change the way you do things. And we live in this age that promotes change. But you know what the great challenge is? Is we never really seem to change. It's this thing that the world throws at us. They go, get better, get better, get better. And we go, okay, I really want to. Apologies. But actually, it always seems to be this thing that we just can't attain. And so that's what I want to touch on a little bit today. When I, my parents got divorced, I was eight years old. It was a very toxic marriage. Um, I remember moments where my dad would drink too much and he would get aggressive and that kind of stuff. And I just remember sitting there so going, something's got to change. And when I was 15 years old, I walked into a youth pastor. He was our life orientation teacher. I walked into a classroom with him and I said to him, I can't do this anymore. Something's got to change. And he said to me, Tyler, there's not very much I can do for you. And that wasn't the answer I was looking for. Because when we watch these shows and we read these books and we do these things, we're going, I need some, you need to, you need to help me. You need to change me. He said, there's not much I can do. He invited me to a youth ministry. And I remember there were 120 young people there. I walked into the back of this youth ministry. I saw 60 young people in the front worshiping God passionately. And I looked at that and I said, there, that's how I'll change. Something gripped my heart. Something about them, the life, the freedom, the grace, that just this, and at the time I didn't have language to express what that was, but I remember looking at it, my friend who was with me thought I was very strange because for some reason at the back of that youth hall, I was jumping up and down singing the name of Jesus because I knew that the only way I was going to change was if I engaged with the person they were engaging with. And so what I'd love to do this morning is I'd love to get stuck into a story of a man in the scriptures. Many of you will know him as Paul. He was originally known as Saul. Um, and this man has a radical story. And the title of what I want to speak on today is The Gospel Changes Everything. 
And if you have your Bibles, I would ask you to turn to Acts 9. Um, and I'll give you a moment as I give you a bit of context. But this man named Saul was a very accomplished man. He had everything he could ever want. He was the student of a man named Gamaliel, who was the teacher of the day. He was the powerhouse of Pharisees. And this man, Saul, was trained by Gamaliel. He was extremely respected. You would imagine he had very large muscles similar to Edwin. You would imagine when he walked into a room, he commanded respect. You would imagine he would have been very good at announcements as well. But actually, he was this man amongst men. The Pharisees respected him. He had authority. He had finance. He had all of these things. And so we enter the story where Paul is killing Christians. He's this man who who does not want to hear about what they called the way. This man named Jesus. These believers are um, advancing the gospel and Paul wanted none of this. He was a Pharisee. He held to what he thought was right. And so what he did was he started to kill Christians. And he wasn't happy to just kill them in Jerusalem. So what he started to do was he went to the outlying areas and he traveled to a place called Damascus. And in that place, he acquired letters that gave him authority to kill Christians. Why? Because he did not want the gospel to advance. And so we enter the story in Acts chapter 9, and it gets quite cool at this point. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 9, there's a couple of verses, so please stick with me. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I love this moment in the scripture. It's almost like that moment where there's Christmas lunch and you've gone into the fridge and you've stolen a very big piece of carrot cake and your parents knock on the door and you go, who is it? You know exactly who it is. You, have, you know who it is. You can imagine this moment. Saul inside him knows that this isn't right. And I mean, I, I really, a light from heaven. You know who that is, guys. He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus had ascended at this time, but you'll note that actually Jesus identified himself with his church, and he still does. It's this close relationship. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. You'll notice that Ananias risked being locked up and thrown in jail for obeying God. Quite a radical thing. This radical moment where God says, do something. Ananias goes, okay, I'm probably going to get locked up and and thrown in jail. But okay, God. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. It is this radical story of a man who hated Christians, who hated Christ. And in a moment, God breaks into his story. In a moment, a 15-year-old young man walks into the back of a, a hall with a bunch of people worshipping, and God breaks into his story. And this morning, I want to um, just three simple thoughts that I want to leave with you in light of Paul's story that I believe will help us navigate what it means to change when we engage with God. The first point that I'd love to, to touch on this morning is God reached down. What you'll notice is that Paul was not in a posture of worship. He was not uh, ready to receive. He was not doing any of that. Actually, Paul was at his very worst. He was murdering people. But God, in his sovereignty, in his power, in his kindness, he reaches down and he pulls Paul out of that brokenness. I really want us to understand this principle that God reached down. In your story, in my story, God reached down. I did not reach up. I think that it is uh, it, this uh, moment with Paul where the light shines and God reaches down and speaks to him is such an incredible picture of Jesus. It is this beautiful picture of our Savior in a moment with a man who needed to change, who needed to be transformed, we see this radical picture of our Savior. Number one, He comes when we least expect it. You know the challenge is that most Jews didn't realize who Jesus was because they weren't expecting the Savior of the world. But God reached down to earth. He reached down to His, his creations who were broken and sinful and lost and needed a Savior. We did nothing to deserve His grace. We did nothing to deserve what God chose to do. But God reached down. He took His Son, made Him incarnate, born as a man to die on a cross. We had nothing to do with it, guys. God reached down and He ripped us out of darkness. In the same way that God reached down to Paul and ripped him out of his brokenness. He did it when we least expected. He did it in our very worst moment. Do you know that the Bible speaks of sin as this all-encompassing thing? I think sometimes we place sin in categories. But actually, the Bible speaks about sin as being this thing that removes us from God. Sin is the absence of God. So I want to say to you that this morning, outside of Christ, I don't care if you, we are the, you may be the wealthiest man in the world, you may have the perfect scenario, you may have the most phenomenal family, but outside of Jesus, you are in the worst place you could be. Because you are separated from the Father, who loves you passionately who calls you son and daughter. He reaches down when we least expected in our very worst moment and we had nothing to do with it. Don't you love in the story of Saul, actually, he's not expecting it. 
He's on his way to Damascus to go and get permission letters to kill Christians. He's going to eliminate God's people. And God reaches down when he least expects it and pulls him out of that darkness and then gives him a future. God is not scared of our sin. He is passionate about us becoming more like him. I think sometimes we think that God turns a blind eye when we are living in a sinful space. God is not scared of our sin. Actually, he's the one who washed it away. Sin is insignificant in comparison to the surpassing greatness of our Jesus. I think sometimes we have this, uh, this thought process that Satan and God are fighting. I want to dispel that myth. God is almighty. Satan has nothing on him. Sin has nothing on him. And in his sovereign, graceful power, he reaches down to earth and rips us out of our darkness. I want to say to you this morning, if you in, would like to see transformation and change in your life, whether you are, if you are a believer, you need to engage God. And if you have not yet come to know Christ, you need to meet Jesus. Because He is the foolproof plan for change in this world. He is also the only plan for change in this world. God reached down. When man attempts to, to, to reach God, when man attempts to change himself, it's like a dog chasing his tail. They never get it. They always think they are going to, but they never do. That is what living a lawful life is. It's this constant chasing of a tail, hoping that you would attain, hoping that you would reach God. But actually, when we read the scriptures and we read this gospel that changes everything, we understand that it has everything to do with him and nothing to do with us. And when, isn't that the most freeing thought? That actually my transformation, my freedom, and my life in God has nothing to do with me other than to go, God, here I am. It is the most freeing thing. It is the, Christianity is the only religion or belief system in the world where you have to do nothing to attain God's love. It's a radical thought. Because our God reached down to us. We don't have to build ladders. It's this radical thought to see transformation come. Number one, God reached down. Number two, God reached in. You know what is this, uh, this incredible thing with change in our world and this, this thought process that actually we can change ourselves. And I, I had this uh, picture of, uh, with this thought of actually a, a root and a shoot. And if you are a gardener, you'll understand this a little bit better. I had to read up on it a bit. I've never grown anything in my life. Um, is that actually we as people deal with the shoots of our lives. If you cut a tree down, it will grow again. It might take time. It might need a, a few external situations to occur. But actually, if you cut a tree down at the trunk, it will grow again. But that is how we try and change. We try... And make ourselves better. But the problem is we deal with the shoots. And I want to say to you today that Jesus deals with the roots. Jesus gets inside and he transforms us. He transforms us from the inside out. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a man who was known for religious authority for all of these things. You know what Jesus called the Pharisees? He called them whitewashed tombs. I don't know if you've ever been called a whitewashed tomb before. I wouldn't have a clue what that means. But in their day and age, it meant something quite significant because the tombs of the day 
to look beautiful and brilliant in the sunlight were, were washed white on the top. But inside is death. Inside is decay. Inside is broken bones. And Jesus engages these men. He says, actually, you look fantastic on the outside. You are very, very good at dealing with the shoots of your lives. But you are not dealing with the roots. And the problem is eventually that thing grows again. Eventually it will come back. If you do not deal with the root of anger, you will eventually become angry again. If you do not deal with the root of depression, that thing will grip you again. But the challenges, and I want to emphasize this point, is that outside of Jesus, we cannot deal with the inside. Outside of Jesus' power breaking into our lives, we cannot deal with the inside. Isn't that free? That actually I simply need to go submit myself to Jesus. And He will transform me from the inside out. The Bible says he is, our, he is the potter, we are the clay. I don't know when last you saw clay fighting with its potter. It doesn't happen. The potter holds the clay, he molds it, he forms it. And all that clay has to do is submit. But the problem is we are very feisty clay. We always want to do it our way. We're just going, no, make it faster. No, make it slower. No, I want to look like this. No, God knows what he's doing. We just have to submit our lives to him. God reaches in. He reaches into our brokenness. He reaches into our sin, like He did when He came to earth and died on the cross and rose again. And He reaches into our weakest places. I want to say to you this morning that God knows where you're at. He knows what situations you're in. And actually, He's not afraid of them. He's actually very excited to change them. Because we serve a God who brings transformation. I want to say the day that I met Christ, my situation didn't get better immediately. Actually, there have been many trials post that moment. But you know what the difference is? Because Jesus transforms me from the inside out, He equips me to deal with those moments. He transforms my heart so that the next time I have to engage with a taxi driver on the road, there's grace. That's a real thing, guys. And actually, He gets in and He transforms us from the inside out. So all of a sudden, our default setting that was the way we would have reacted to something is transformed. Why? Because we live a life obedient to our Savior. Say, Jesus, just do it in me. You can, honestly, you can whip yourself and bang your head against the the wall a million times trying to change something. Without the power of Christ, that thing will not change. Please stop reading self-help books. Engage Jesus. It is such a powerful thing. Jesus deals with the, the roots of our problems. He rips out those things. That, that is what I love about this picture of roots. Is actually in order for a plant to die, you have to rip the roots out. You, you can't leave a few inside there. You can't like, oh, I'll just neaten this up. No, you have to rip them out. And that is what the power of God does. To bring it back to Paul in this moment, I think that the quickest way to get some, a man to change is to blind him for three days. Because all of a sudden, you're not worried about your car. You're not worried about your house. You're not worried about any of those things. You deal with this. You know what? Sometimes God has to close our eyes. He has to get us in a place where we are face to face with Him. So that He can deal with those things. Sometimes God will put us in places that seem impossible. That seem like they are going to break us. But actually, it's God closing our eyes so that we can engage with Him. The Bible says that it is our trials. That, that form us and mold us into who God has designed us to be. It is our trials that make us more Christ-like. I feel like this is quite a trial for Paul. But God is changing him. 
And I believe that in this room, we, we are, this room is filled with world changers. But the only way we change the world is when we allow Jesus to change us first. Because when the power of the Holy Spirit comes in and the power of Christ transforms us, we live a life that looks very attractive to the world. And we transform it. Number one, God reached down. Number two, God reached in. And number three, God reached everything. I want to say today, and I believe that this is a fundamental thing for us who believe in Christ and for those who are still on the journey to meet Christ, is that God did not die for some things. Jesus did not die on a cross and defeat some sin. He did not take some of the keys of death. He took all of it. And actually, I believe in this life, if God had to fix us all in one moment and get everything right, I think we would be incredibly overwhelmed. So what does he do in his grace and his kindness? He takes us on a journey toward transformation. You know, the Bible doesn't just use the word change. It uses the word transform. It's like this, wow, brand new thing. Uh, Gabe uses this incredible illustration. He says it's like, like, and uh, some of you will remember the days of Blackberry, the, the ball that always broke. But actually, it's not like getting a new Blackberry. It's not like upgrading to the touchscreen Blackberry that no one ever bought. Actually, it's like having a Blackberry and then getting an iPhone. It's brand new. Amen. It's brand new. It works perfectly. It's got everything you need. This is not an advert for iPhone. Um, but actually, it is this totally, the Bible speaks that it, uh, we are a new creation when we meet Christ. That means that Christ died for everything. That he reaches in to everything. And you know why I chose to use the story of Paul? Is because actually in a moment, God turned this man around like you have never seen before. He wasn't one of the disciples that walked with Jesus. He wasn't one of the disciples who remembers the day that Jesus sat at a table with them and said, this is what's going to happen. No, he was a man like you and me. God reached down in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his brokenness, ripped him out and gave him a future. And the difference between us trying to change ourselves and God transforming us is that God sets us up for a future. Why? Because he wrote it before at the dawn of time. He wrote your future. And so what we sit with is a, a complete transformation. Actually, if you relate this back to Saul, it changed, Jesus changed, not only did Jesus transform his, his kind of religious tick box on the forms when he submits for car insurance. That wasn't what God did here. God gripped him and transformed the very inner processes of his life. He transformed his belief system. Paul would have been a ridiculous racist. The Jewish people hated non-Jews. They did not engage with them. They did not walk into their towns. They did not do any of those things. But how radical is this? That Paul, that Jesus would save Paul so that he could preach to the Gentiles. He was a man well equipped to preach to the Jews. He knew their law. He knew their books. He knew everything about them. He could have preached to them like you've never seen in your life. This man would have been a power preacher in the Jewish synagogue. But what does God do? God grips a man, he transforms his belief system, and he sends him to preach to people he never, he did not love, he did not even like. God gets in and he transforms our belief systems. He transforms our default settings. I love in this moment, a man named Paul, and if you read the rest, he actually wrote a lot of the New Testament. And if you read the way he engages with churches, 
versus the way he engaged with Christians before he met God, it is totally different. He was killing them. And in the midst of a whole bunch of situations, he writes to them in love. Actually, when the church probably needed a clout, he writes to them in love. It's amazing how God can turn an angry man into a loving man. I believe there are people in this room who, and I, I say this with the utmost respect, I'm not married, but I think there are people in this room with spouses who are very angry. And you've been trusting for them to change for a very long time. And I want to say to you that, pray for them. And trust God that He will get in and change them. Because He is the only one that can. He changed his economic status. Paul went from being very wealthy to very poor a lot of the time. What does God deal with? He deals with greed. God is worried about our hearts. You know the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's in the book of Matthew from uh, chapter 5 to chapter 7, is God dealing with the heart. Actually, the Pharisees were not allowed to be seen looking at women. God says if you look at a woman, uh, they couldn't be seen with women. If you, God says if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery. He's not trying to put us on a, uh, say to us, oh no, we're going to make everything more difficult for you now. He's saying you can never reach my standards. You need me. You can never reach God's standards. You need the power of God. He deals with, um, with our family challenges. You know that because my dad had an, a problem with alcohol, my future looked like alcoholism. How many times have we seen in situations where a father, a grandfather passes it to the father, passes it to the son, passes it to his children? I want to say, when you meet Jesus, that thing is broken. Why? Because Jesus gives you a new bloodline, He gives you a new future, He gives you a new hope, and how's this? He gives you a new father. That thing is totally transformed. I will never be an alcoholic. I will be a phenomenal husband. I will be a phenomenal father. Not because my dad was a good example, but because Jesus changes me. We've got to engage with the transforming power of God. Now I want to say that this transformation only comes when we are constantly engaging with Jesus. I love this morning, I was chatting to Wayne, we were preparing for the service. He says, I went through Ephesians this week. How many times have you read Ephesians, Wayne? But he keeps engaging with the Bible. He keeps engaging with God. Why? Because transformation has to come from the inside. And Jesus is the only game changer. I want to land with this. And to answer my initial question, how do we change? We can only truly change when we encounter Jesus. And when we encounter Jesus, we must change. He doesn't give us the option, which is what is so incredible. And I want to finish with this scripture. In Ephesians 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, it says this. And I want to say to you, if you don't have a life scripture, make this one it. It's brilliant. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Number one, you are saved by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. Through faith, it is just believing in God. That's all we have to do. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So I want to release you this morning from trying to force yourself to get better. I want to release 
you from this morning from striving. Because actually God, we don't change when we strive. We change when we devote ourselves to God. And you are His workmanship. And this morning I would ask you, will you allow God to work in you? I want to say this morning, if you do not know Christ, if you, have not, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, we would love to pray for you afterwards. We would love for you to come to the front and I'd love to lead you to Christ. And if you do have a personal relationship with Jesus, will you allow Him to work in you? Will you allow God to deal with the belief system, with the default setting, with the family history? Because actually, when we engage the Word of God, when we worship Jesus, and when we make radical decisions, it gives God the space to deal with the roots of our lives. He's a very good God. Can I pray for us? Is that all right, Ben? Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that as we engage with your scriptures, you transform us, you call us to more, and you give us the space, God, to engage with you. I thank you, Jesus, that you reached down into our brokenness. That we did not reach up, we did not have to build ladders to you, God. You reached all the way down, and you rip us out of the miry clay, out of our broken, sinful state. Thank you, Jesus, that you reach into us, that you deal with the root issues of our lives, that you bring transformation and change and life, God, in our innermost being. I pray this morning, God, that we would open our hearts to you, that we would open our hearts that you may deal with us, that you may pour your life in. Your word says, Jesus, that you, Holy Spirit, are the life giver. And so I pray in this moment, Holy Spirit, would you pour your life into every heart in this room? Thank you, God, that today you release us of the need to strive for your love, for your affections, for your transformation, but rather you call us to obedience, a life like the clay that simply does what its master wants it to do. So, Father, this morning I pray for transformation. I pray for life in us. I thank you, God, that you are the game changer. In your incredible name.